And now, a message from Pastor Michael Carmody. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Get, welcome the folks that are with us online this morning. We always have a number of people with us. And uh, uh, Pastor Josh and Alicia are away this weekend. And they may be joining us this service. You never know. Um, anyway, so I have to behave myself. Um, it's, uh, it's good to have everyone here. Always good to be together, is it not? So we started a new series during Lent this year. Lent is a 40-day period of time leading up to Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which, of course, we celebrate every day all the time. Am I right about it? We always celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is our victory. And uh, we always celebrate that. But during the Lent season, it's kind of a period of time that was originally set apart for fasting, uh, for letting go of things that may distract us so that we can focus on things that will bring our hearts nearer and closer to the heart of God. And so uh, this Lent season, we've uh, jumped into a series, a new series, and that series is titled, anybody remember? Last words. That's right. Last words are important. Anybody ever interested in getting in the last word? When you're having a conversation, you want to get that last word in there, make sure your point is heard. Uh, My wife and I have an agreement. I always get the last word in our house. It's yes, dear, right? (laughs) Guys all know that. Um, I always get the last word, yes, dear. But that's not what we're talking about today. That's not the kind of last words we're talking about. Uh, We're talking about the words that Jesus spoke from the cross and the things that he said while he was hanging on the cross. And so uh, all of these phrases, all of these things that Jesus said from the cross, his last words, you might say, were all directed either at God, he was having a conversation with his father, or they were directed at a person or persons who were there that day in in the crowd, in the gathering on site that day. Uh, These were simply the words that Jesus used to express himself on that day at that time. He said these things because there was a reason. He was having conversation either with his father or with people. He was simply engaging in conversation. And someone was there and wrote down these words, and we have them today as part of the Holy Writ, the Holy Scripture, that we get to look at the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Undoubtedly, these words actually spoke to specific feelings that Jesus was having, especially when he said things like, I thirst, Um, It is finished, into your hands I commend my spirit. He's talking to the Father in some of these. He's just speaking generally, but it speaks to something that's going on inside of him or perhaps a response to his surroundings. We'll talk about that a little bit. So there's a very natural element in the words that Jesus spoke. There's something very, just very common, really, about the words that Jesus spoke. Um, he wasn't necessarily laying out doctrine like he did on the Sermon on the Mount, or he wasn't re- redirecting or correcting uh, some of the, the fallacies of the Pharisees, we might say. He wasn't working on uh, delivering doctrine. He was speaking from his heart what was happening in his life at that moment. And as he spoke these things in a very natural element, we also realized that everything he said, everything Jesus said always, but everything he said from the cross, uh, these words have very far-reaching theological and spiritual impact. I almost said spirological. I'm going to make up a new word. Theological and spirological impact. Forget I said that. There is no spirological, it's spiritual impact (laughs) on our lives, right? Um, So um, everything from the very first word that we talked about last week, we'll get there in a second, from Father, forgive them, right, to the very last, it is finished, and he gave up his, his spirit. All of those and everything in between, these words continue to form 
the doctrine of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so they're important words. Um, and I want you to take a moment to consider this with me, if you would. I was just thinking about this as I was preparing for this message. So these are the words that Jesus speaks while he is in the process of off offering his life as redemption for the entire human race. The entire culmination of Jesus' ministry for the roughly three and a half years that he uh, performed his public earthly ministry, everything he taught, everything he talked about, everything he focused on was leading toward this moment, a sacrifice that would be made by a spotless lamb to forgive the sins and provide redemption for the entire world. While he is in the process of making that sacrifice, he speaks these words. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that these words are weightier or that they have more import or more impact than anything else that Jesus said. But certainly in the moment of redemption, what he says has impact on our lives and it has impact in this world. And so as he speaks these things, I believe these, these words give insight into the heart of Jesus and into what he did for us in the crucifixion. So again, last week, uh, Pastor Josh spoke um, about the, the first one. We looked at, uh, again, Father, forgive them, right? right? And of course, he was speaking, I believe, in a very natural sense to those who were there that day. He was speaking over the soldiers who had crucified him and nailed him to a cross. He was speaking over the uh, Pontius Pilate, most likely, who uh, agreed with the Jews and sentenced him to death, probably speaking over Caiaphas, the high priest who demanded his crucifixion. Um, he was speaking over those who were there that were jeering him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're not aware of the importance of this moment. And so he spoke that forgiveness over them. And yet, when he spoke that forgiveness, it was deeper than just something that happened on that day. Think about this. Father, forgive them. He's speaking to the Father. Every, every, everything, everyone that's not Jesus and the Father of the Holy Spirit, everything that's not God is them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them saved you. That word, Father, forgive them from the cross the father heard the prayer of his son and he chose to forgive every person who was under the penalty of sin because Jesus was made sin for us so that we could walk free from sin and have redemption in Christ and be forever free. That is pretty good news. Father, forgive them. As we, as we sit, stand here today in this sanctuary, Father, forgive them has altered the eternal destiny of 2.5 billion people on this planet today. Father, forgive them still resonates as a promise that the Father forgives us no matter who we are or what we've done. Even if we drove the spikes into his, into his wrists and feet ourselves, even if we are the ones who demanded that he be crucified, he forgives all of us. Father, forgive them includes us. This is really good news, by the way. Nudge your neighbor says, that's not too bad. You don't have to say it like that, but it's not too bad. So today's words are taken again from Luke 23, where we were last week looking at, Father, forgive them. Um, today we're going to Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 39 through 42. But I want to begin in verse 32, already on the screen. Check it out. Two others also who were criminals. Everybody say criminals. Were led, away, were led away, excuse me, to be put to death with him. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged there kept deriding him, kind of making fun of him, poking at him, blaspheming him, saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So my message today, the core of my message today is with me in paradise. Jesus tells this man, today you will be with me in paradise. Now there's a lot to unpack in this, um, but let's just look at it. It begins with a conversation. So Jesus is crucified. Two criminals are crucified with him. Um, It's interesting. You know, Jesus was accustomed to running around with, with, I guess what we would call the less than desirables of this world. Jesus was accustomed to hanging out with people who were, were not the best people in Jewish culture. I mean, if you look at the list of people that he interacted with, the list of people that followed him and who they were, we have in that list, we have prostitutes. They're not looked at very favorably among Jewish society. Uh, We have tax collectors. It wasn't like it is now where everyone loves to pay taxes. Uh, Back in those days, people didn't like to pay taxes. And you have Jewish individuals collecting taxes from the Jews and giving the taxes to the Romans. These people were not looked upon with very much love by the Jewish people. So he has prostitutes, he has tax collectors, he has lowly uneducated fishermen who are considered to be uh, beyond, below common even in that culture. Um, You actually have members of the Jewish resistance movement, also known as the zealots, those who are anti-Rome, anti-government, they want to bring a rebellion. Again, many of the Jewish people didn't think much of them because they were concerned that this element would get the Roman soldiers and the Roman government very angry with them, that Rome would come in, take their temple, destroy the city, which eventually did happen in 70 AD. So they didn't really care for these uh, Jewish resistance um, followers either. You have very poor common people who are following Jesus. You have the diseased, people who he had healed, people who had been sick, people who had spent their lives in sickness and suddenly they could see or they could walk and they're healed and they're the followers of Jesus. So basically, his followers are the purged of Jewish society. The people that high society really want nothing to do with. And of course, there are some high-level people. We know Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's a Pharisee. He's a a Jewish religious leader. And he says, we know that you have come from God, and we we know certain things about you. And so there were some who believed in him. But but his followers, generally speaking, were less than desirables. They were the people not thought of uh, too, too highly. The Jewish people, the Jewish leadership especially, had a, uh, a very detailed process of determining a person's value. And we're, we can't get into all that, but basically let's just say the vast majority of the people that followed Jesus were in that group where that had been purged by Jewish society. And so that these folks don't really matter. The fact that Jesus hung around with them tells us something. Things were changing. He looks at those who don't really matter and says it really matters. They really matter. He looks at those who are the purged of this world and says, they're the ones that I want to love. They're the ones that I want to touch. He loves us all. He wants to touch us all. But you know, sometimes when people get into a place where they think they're okay, they don't need anything. They're not looking for anything. But those who know they have a need, those who are spiritually bankrupt, he reaches to them. And so the fact that he was doing this was a strong and solid message to the world that something was going to change. So Jesus constantly hung out with the wrong people. It would make sense then that he would be crucified with a couple of criminals. They're his people, right? He's crucified with a couple of criminals. Now, it doesn't say in the text anywhere what these criminals did, just that they're criminals. 
Uh, Matthew uses a different term, whereas Luke calls them criminals, Matthew calls them bandits. Now, bandits are robbers, but a specific kind of robbers. Bandits are robbers who use weaponry and violence when they rob people. And so this kind of elevates maybe their crime a little bit, but we don't know exactly what their crime is. Um, yet, nevertheless, here they are, hanging there, being crucified. And this one criminal, of course, the one is making fun of Jesus and saying, hey, you're supposed to be the, you're supposed to be the Messiah. You know, it says King of the Jews. When he's crucified, it says King of the Jews above his cross. That's, his, that's what he's sentenced for. That's his crime. And so, you know, he, he says, you know, he's, he's making fun of him. And the other one speaks up. And when the other one speaks, I think we can see a... Uh, we, we can see faith in what he says. Let me remind you, this won't be on the screen, but let me just remind you of what he says. Here's what this other criminal says to the first criminal who was making fun of Jesus. He says, do you not fear God? Suddenly this criminal has fear of God in him. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting, I'm sorry, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. We're gonna come back to that in a moment. And then he says this, but this man has done nothing wrong. How does this criminal hanging there beside Jesus have the wherewithal? How does he have the presence of mind to say, you and I are getting what we deserve. This one has done nothing wrong. How does he know that? How does he get that information? Where does that information come from? I don't know that we have an answer, but I would guess Given the gravity of that moment, think about it. This is the moment that the creator of the universe is making an act of redemption to redeem all of humanity, to forgive all of sins, and to change the world forever. I would think if you have any, any semblance at all of spirit or heart, you would pick up on the fact that this is a very unique moment. I don't know if that's what happened or not. I can't say for sure. But somehow, this criminal knew this. This man has done nothing wrong. This criminal is taking in a scene that will forever change the world. He sees the sights, he hears the sounds, he smells the smell of that moment. Something inside of him has the presence of mind to say, this man has done nothing wrong. Then he looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So first of all, he says, this man has done nothing wrong. That is a statement of faith, of acceptance. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you, come into his, when you come into your kingdom. And he's saying a couple of things here, again, that I think just push the, the level of this man's faith. First of all, he knows that Jesus is coming into a kingdom. Sure, it says king of the Jews above him, but there's something that's happening in this man's heart. He says, when you come into your kingdom, he knows he's coming into a kingdom. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, he believed that Jesus could do something for him. That's the idea of remember me. When he says remember me, it's not like, hey, Jesus, when you come into your, to, to your kingdom, have mental recall of who I am. Remember me hanging here in this conversation and you know, just remember that you saw me. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying remember me. Same way Joseph told the cupbearer in prison, hey, when you get out and you're serving to the Pharaoh again, remember me. In other words, get me out of here, right? That's what this man hanging here saying, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, do something for me. Help me do something for my life. He somehow believed that Jesus could do something for him, even if it meant doing something for him post-mortem. He knew he was dying, but he still believed Jesus could do something for him once he came into his kingdom. 
This criminal is basically saying, include me in your victory over this thing. I know it's coming. I want to be a part of it. I want to be part of your kingdom. This is incredible faith. Jesus' response, I think, responds to this man's faith. When he said, I tell you, which is basically a way of saying, this is the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I tell you. And then he, he levels him. Here, here he says this. Today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. What a statement. I, don't, I, I believe that must have been more than the criminal expected to hear. Today you will be with me in paradise. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he hang there with an unnamed criminal and offer him paradise just because of one question? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The only explanation we have is because that's exactly why he's there. The whole reason Jesus is there is to forgive those who are broken. Even if they don't ask for forgiveness. This man didn't hang there and say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I repent and I turn my life away. And if there's water here, I'd like to be bad. He didn't say any of that. He just said, when you come into your kingdom, do something for me. Remember me. And by doing that, by saying that, he put faith in Jesus. And that's what the cross is. It's a place where we can connect by faith with what Jesus has done for us. The cross is a place of hope for the hopeless. Smile a little bit. That's good news. It's a place for a second chance for the outcasts. The scourged of society. The criminal element gets a second chance at the cross. That's good news because I are one. Or I were. The cross is a place of new life. New hope. Renewed opportunities. Undeserved faith. Cross is a place of an extension of grace and compassion. Somebody help me out in here. It's a place of joy and peace and strength. It's a place of change. It's a place of transformation. That's what the cross is. It's only fitting that while Jesus was there, somebody got changed. This criminal hanging next to him, his life is completely changed because Jesus is demonstrating to the world, this is what redemption does. It takes the likes of this character and offers him a place with me in paradise today. He's not going to have to atone for his sins. He's not going to have to fight for it. He's going to die and he and I together are going to paradise. What? This criminal said by his own admission when he was speaking to criminal number one, he said, we are getting what we deserve. We're getting what we deserve. He said, you go look and look, look in the books, man. It says when we do what we did, the ultimate punishment would be crucifixion. We're getting what we deserve. He was getting what he deserved. He got crucifixion. By the way, crucifixion was not just a way of executing criminals. It was a way of creating extreme humiliation. The idea of being hung publicly in a public place where people could walk by and shoot jeers at you and say things and spit on you and do whatever they want. Throw pebbles at you, throw rocks at you. They could do whatever they wanted to. You are the scourge of society. It was intended to humiliate. So here he is. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting crucifixion. We're getting humiliation. Ultimately, we are getting death. We're getting what we deserve. That's what he deserved. Jesus, operating in grace, gave him what he didn't deserve. Paradise. On the other side of death. Yikes. That's good news. Nudge your neighbor says, not too bad. He gave him forgiveness. He gave him hope. Do you think that, you think that changed this man's countenance? I mean, he knows he's dying, right? He's in pain. He knows he's a criminal. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. I feel better. I don't know. These spikes don't hurt so much. 
I'm not so scared of death anymore. Something's changed. Y'all think that might have happened? I'm just, you know, spitballing here. You will be with me in paradise. There's been a lot of discussion in, excuse me, in theological circles about what that paradise is. The word paradise literally just simply means a lush garden. So Jesus says, you will be with me in a lush garden. But that's not what the man hears. It's something different than that. Literally, if you look up paradise, that's the first thing I'll say. This is a word, paradisio, that means a lush garden. It's like a tropical paradise. Anybody imagine white sand beaches, palm trees swaying in the breeze, seagulls flying by. You got the waves crashing up against this. You smell the salt from the sea, right? Nice warm sunshine on your face. You like that seagull impersonation? That's pretty good, right? A tropical paradise. When he says, you will be with me in paradise, he uses a word that literally means a lush garden or an orchard. The word paradise changed over time. It came to mean near the end of the, of the Jewish rule before Jesus came along. It came to mean a place where the blessed gather after death. And when Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise, he's hearkening back to that idea of a place where the blessed gather after death. And that's how this man obviously hears that. Paradise. I don't know if I have a slide for this or not, but I had, I had a definition, the place where the spirits of the redeemed dwell eternally with God. I don't think I have a slide for it. My bad. Let me say it again. The place, everybody say it with me, the place, place. where the spirits, where the spirits of, the of the redeemed dwell eternally, dwell eternally. With, God. with God. That's paradise. Is it not? The bottom line, here's what Jesus said. The bottom line is this. You will be, say those two words with me, with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Somebody say, well, where, where is paradise? Is it heaven? Um, you know, what exactly is paradise? Here's, where, here's what paradise is. Paradise is with Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, you're in paradise. Wherever Jesus is, you are in the best place you can possibly be. That word paradise was originally used for the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God. It became used also for the land of Goshen. When the nation of Israel came into, first came into Egypt, they went into the land of Goshen. The, the, the Garden of Eden and the land of Goshen, this is the best land that they could possibly come to. God wanted to send them to Canaan land, the land of promise, the promised land. Why? Because it was the best possible land for them. He always wanted to give them his best, and that's paradise. You know what paradise is today? It's God's best, being with him forever in a state of eternal bliss. Somebody help me out up in here. Paul wrote this about this idea of paradise. Check it out, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, I know a person in Christ, he's speaking of himself, by the way, being very uh, kind of cryptic in his language, but he said, I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Everybody say the third heaven. Whether in body or out of body, I don't know. Caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. He said, man, I went to a place. First, he called it the third heaven. Then he called it paradise. Same place. And he said, you're not allowed to say anything that you hear there. This is a different place. Yes? Yeah. So first of all, the third heaven, what does that mean? Well, um, 
there's a, there's a breakdown of the heavens, we might say. First of all, we have the heavens that are within our atmosphere or within our gravity, where the birds fly and airplanes fly and hot air balloons and, and the air above us, yes? Then you break out of gravity and you get into the second heavens. That would be the first heaven. You get into the second heavens. This is where the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the universe, the ever-expanding creation of God when he said, let there be and there was and it began to create. That's still being created. It's still happening. The creative word of God is still creating a universe. That's why the universe is still in motion. That's the second heavens. It's, it's expansive. You can't even begin to measure it. Then there's a third heaven. That is a place, certainly, but a place that we can't really understand that is the dwelling place of the redeemed. Those whom Christ has, has forgiven and redeemed a, an eternal dwelling place. And that's what he calls paradise. That place where the redeemed gather with God. So heaven is not first a place. It is a place, but before it's a place, Heaven is a position. What's that position? It's to be with Christ. I don't know where heaven is. I know we read a little bit about it in the scriptures. We read of the, you know, the streets of gold and the, and the fruit trees that are growing along the river, and we read all the, the stuff about heaven. I don't know how much of that is literal. I don't know what that's really talking about. You know what I know heaven is? Heaven is the presence of Jesus. And wherever he is, that's the best place for us to be. No matter what else it looks like or what else happens there, we realize that as God has always wanted paradise for his people, whether it was the Garden of Eden or Goshen or Canaan, he's always wanted paradise for his people, the best of the land. He has saved the best of the best, the best of heavens for his people, for those whom he's redeemed. That's pretty good news, by the way. Just as Jesus told that criminal, that robber, that on that very day he would be with Jesus in paradise, so you and I are promised eternity in paradise. But not just that, but that we get to be with Jesus in paradise. Because if Jesus isn't there, it's not paradise. If Jesus isn't there, it's not heaven. You with me? So those of us who are sitting in here today, criminals, sinners, just give me something if you can connect with any of these. Law violators, the broken, the addicted, the suffering, the struggling, the spiritually bankrupt, those who have not loved God with all their heart, those who have not loved their neighbor as themselves. Any of these, when we reach out in honest need to a gracious Savior, we receive the same promise that this criminal received, the promise of today being in paradise with Jesus. The moment I prayed and said, Jesus, I'm bankrupt without you. I need you. I don't remember the words I prayed, but I need Jesus. Immediately something changed inside of me. You know what changed inside of me? A little piece of paradise called Jesus came to live in me. And suddenly my life began to develop into a lush garden of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of love and peace and joy and patience. That began to grow in me, and it's still growing, and it's still changing. I'm in the process of becoming a lush garden on the inside. So if you don't like what you're, what you're seeing just yet, it's just because there's a few thorns getting pushed out of the way so the lush garden can grow, right? Because I got some thorn stuff on the inside, and I know none of you do, but I do. And some of that has to get out of there, and sometimes when it comes out, it gets to the outside, and it starts causing problems out here. But that's okay. There's a lush garden growing on the inside, and eventually that will take over. We are with Jesus right now. We don't have to wait to go to heaven to enjoy paradise. There's a little sliver of paradise living in us right now. I'm not to say that this is all we get. This, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, the down payment 
on everything that God has for us. And there are days that I'm, you know, I'm praying in the presence of God and worship and in, in God's presence, I think, wow, if this is a down payment. Down payment's usually not very much. If this is just, if this is just a tenth or a fifth or, you know, let's just say it's a tithe of what God's going to give us, you know? Man, we're in some for, for some good stuff. I mean, this is 10%. I can't wait to enjoy this 90. That's why we don't get it all here. We die. That's why we get that 90 after we leave or we get the, the fullness of God's paradise later because our flesh can't handle that much glory. You know what I'm saying? We don't know entirely what it means to go to paradise with Jesus, to be with him eternally in whatever condition that is. But here's what we do know. We know it's good. And we know that as great as this life is, and it is great, especially with Jesus, Amen. that that life to come it causes this life to pale in comparison. Paradise with Jesus is far better. Paul said this in, second, uh, in uh, Galatians 2.19. He made this statement, I have been crucified with Christ. Everybody say that. Say, I have been crucified with Christ. That's how, that's how Paul saw it. I have been crucified with Christ. And if you think about that, we are the criminal. Was the criminal crucified with Christ? Yes. And what did Jesus tell him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. We have been crucified with Christ. The theological impact of that statement from the cross still resonates today. As I said, Jesus is just having conversation. He didn't even start this conversation. The criminal started, one criminal started making fun of him. The other criminal rebukes the first criminal and then says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, yeah, I'll just take you to paradise today. <laughs> Boom. Case closed. There you go. And still today, we look at that and we think, Jesus promised a criminal paradise. That gives me hope. Sure, we have a better place in the life to come, in eternity with God that is certainly better than earth. But paradise lives in us. There's a garden growing in you. A garden of God's love and joy and peace and compassion. If that garden grows in us, we give people the opportunity to come along and pick the fruit of our garden. And those who have no love can find love in our presence because there's a garden growing in us, because paradise lives in us, because Jesus is with us. When we find people who are broken, we carry them the healer and love them like they are, and God begins a work in them because paradise lives in us. Look around you. Paradise all around you in here. Sure, there's more to come. There's more to come. But to be with Jesus is to be in paradise. And we are with Jesus today, yes? For more information on New Covenant, contact us at 3318 Fifth Avenue South, Fort Dodge, Iowa, 50501. Or you can call us at 515-955-6222.